Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time for the vault. And today we got bugs. That's right. April is the uh, the cruelest month. And so here we are with the first vault episode of April, uh, dealing with imagined bugs under the skin and sometimes actual bugs under the skin. That's right. So, uh, you know, if, if that makes you a little squeamish, uh, maybe come back to this one later. But if it, No, that, if that makes you a little squeamish, get over it and listen. <laughs> Either way, uh, we're, we're going to keep going here. Uh, stick with us if you have the guts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, what's the weirdest thing you ever got stuck up your nose? Ooh, I think I've been very fortunate. I I know plenty of other people who have tales of siblings getting odd objects lodged up their nostrils, be it a marble or I think my brother-in-law had a piece of carpet stuck up there (laughs) or something. You know, you hear all these stories and and luckily I don't think I've ever had anything – Anything stuck in my nose, so oh. I'm, I'm fortunate in that regard. You know, your mention of uh, the marbles makes me think about. Did you ever see that old episode of the show Home Movies where their their take yes. on the like Judas Priest subliminal messages thing is? Mm-hmm. There's a rock band who uh, I think does a does a public service announcement song called "Don't Put Marbles in Your Nose," but it also keeps saying "Put them in there." <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the the worst, especially like childhood experience of anything. Uh, uh, going into an unexpected orifice would be um, when I had some sort of small insect fly into my ear. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, uh, which w- the main distressing thing is that a, a little bug, once it gets inside your ear, is is extremely loud. Yes. Uh, so I do, I do remember that quite clearly. It's looking at the outside from the inside. It's a horrible feeling. Yeah, and I remember like my dad was there and he he jumped in, and uh, I guess it happened at the house because they had uh, some like rubbing alcohol mm-hmm. and like they poured a little bit of that into my ear and that took care of it. Well, that experience is going to be a great jumping off point <laughs> for our discussion today because I think. We we should start off by playing one of my favorite games that we play on this show, which is go into old medical journals and read some weirdness. Oh, yes. So I want to talk about a case report that was published in December of 1830 in the medical journal The Lancet. This is a truly disturbing report. So if you, if you get icked out easily, uh, you know, fair warning. So let us read from The Lancet. A farmer's wife, 28 years of age, residing in the neighborhood of Metz, had for a long time been affected with an unpleasant itching sensation in the nose with coriza, which means a runny nose, to which symptoms in the year 1827 violent headache exceeded, so that she was at length obliged to apply for medical aid. The headache was irregularly intermittent and generally began at the root of the nose and the middle of the forehead, or at the right frontal region, extending this first to the right side and then over the whole head. The attack was accompanied by a great discharge of tears and sometimes even nausea and vomiting. The features were forcibly distorted, the jaws firmly closed, and the eyes and ears so very sensible that she could not bear the least light or any noise. At other times she became delirious, pressed the head between her hands, and ran about in a state of distraction. The pain was, according to her statement, like the strokes of 
of a hammer or as if something was perforating the skull and the fits generally returned about 12 times in 24 hours, sometimes the headache continued uninterruptedly for several days. The coriza, or runny nose again, existed during the whole period and the discharge was occasionally very fetid and mixed with blood. Okay, so we're starting off pretty gross already. This poor woman is suffering these terrible chronic symptoms. She's got the headache. She's got the uh, the, the swelling. She's got the sensitivity in the, the eyes and the nose and all that. Uh, and then she's also got this discharge mixed with blood. It's always distressing in any case to have fetid discharge. Yeah, the idea that it's fetid uh, uh, is very worrisome. Okay, so continuing. Some medicines were employed, but no regular plan of treatment was followed, and it was not before a 12-month suffering that this singular affection terminated after the expulsion of a worm from the nose, which moved with rapidity, and when placed in water, remained alive for several days. It was afterwards killed by being put in alcohol, and then sent to Monsieur Marichal, who reported the case to the society. He found the animal to be more than two inches in length, and one line in breadth. And I looked that up. Apparently a line is a unit of measure that was not very well standardized. It probably means like a tenth of an inch or mm-hmm. a twelfth of an inch. So not, not very wide, um, but two inches in length. It had two antennae. Was, okay. So not a, not a proper worm. Right. Not a proper worm. Was of yellowish color, flat, and consisted of 64 rings on each of which were two legs. So definitely not a worm. <laughs> uh, Monsieur Marshall subsequently transmitted the insect to uh, Messieurs Hollandre and Roussel, who ascertained that it was a Scolopendra electrica. Okay. So if it had... Two legs per segment. Yeah. Uh, that sounds an awful lot like a centipede. Right you are, Robert. This is a centipede we're talking about. This report alleges that this woman had this chronic condition for more than a year, which was alleviated when she finally blew a centipede out of her nose. Still, that's got to be pretty satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, talk about what is the – is there a word for that, the psychological thing where like uh, people are obsessed with like uh, removing objects from their body, the satisfaction people get from like picking a huge booger or from I, mm, or yeah. from pooping a large poop? I don't know, but – or popping um, a, a pimple. Yes, uh, that no, too. Yeah. Yes, I, I've thought about this on and off for years and I, I would love to explore it in an episode if there's enough material out there about it because clearly – it is an obsession. Like there are whole video channels on YouTube associated yeah. with with this sort of thing, and um, yeah. I, I, and and when I hear people talk about, oh, imagine the virtual realms will happen in the future, right. uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, yes, you're going to have your obvious uh, sex and violence oriented uh, uh, experiences, but there are going to be like whole virtual realms just uh, just uh, devoted to the the popping of of uh, surrealistic pimples. Yeah. What is the Grand Theft Auto of like vis? body purging experiences. Yeah. Before I forget, I, I do want to give a hat tip uh, because I came across this story on the blog of a British writer named Thomas Morris who covers a lot of horrifying medical history and is definitely worth following if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So shout out to Morris, who we will return to again in a minute. But anyway, back to the centipede coming out of the nose. So there are probably some good reasons to question the details of this report, right? Just because it was published in a medical journal like The Lancet doesn't mean it's necessarily true, especially this far back in history. Uh, but we can we can come back. To that. So the, in, the uh, 
insect alleged here is not actually an insect. It is a centipede. It's the Scolopendra electrica, a reportedly bioluminescent centipede. Uh, according to a catalog by Bozard in Nature in 1896, quote, a well-known luminous insect, again, not an insect, but well-known luminous insect whose light is but rarely seen owing to the insect living underground and in manure heaps. Okay, so that's how it would have seen what it was doing up in her uh, sinuses. Maybe, or that's maybe that's how it ended up there, like she was snorting manure. There you go. But the bottom line is this this report is that a woman had a glowing centipede living in her nose for over a year. Which is a bit far-fetched. Yeah, I think so. But, I, I mean, it's impossible to know for sure, but I'm, I, I have a lot of doubts. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I wanted to explore more, and then later we'll get into the more general territory, I think, of creepy crawlies getting into body orifices. And I think we're going to be focusing primarily not on things that are, say, obligate parasites, because that's a more trodden ground, right? You might understand why, like, say, a leech could get into the human anus because it, it's seeking that kind of environment. Right. Or or certainly endoparasites that yeah. even if they're not, I mean, certainly there are plenty of uh, human endoparasites, but there also are, are endoparasites of other species that can end up in our bodies. Yeah. And even though they are not at home here, um, uh, this home is very much like the home they desire. Right. So we're not so much talking about like hookworms, tapeworms, human bot flies and all mm-hmm. that, which we have discussed in other episodes. Uh, but we're talking more today about creatures that don't need to be in the human body and wouldn't normally seek it out, but somehow they at least reportedly end up there. Uh, so coming back to the Scolopendra, uh, centipedes of the genus Scolopendra can be truly awesome predators. They tend to step over what is, for me, one of the most shocking and unpleasant of lines, which is when invertebrates prey on vertebrates. That's oh, yeah. Something, something about that always feels backwards and scary and not okay. I mean, I mean, part of it perhaps is that, and I feel like this is a, kind of a, an undercurrent to um, uh, to this earlier example, is that invertebrates invertebrates will undoubtedly feast upon vertebrates. Right. Like, you know, they are they are like some of carrion, the yeah, yeah. they are going to be some of the primary devourers of our uh, of our deceased form, and and certainly um, older generations that were more associated and more closely uh, aligned with physical death. They, they would have witnessed this more often, uh, yeah. both in, in the bodies of animals, but also in the in, in human bodies from time to time. But I'm it, talking about predation. You're talking about, yeah, outright killing, which seems like they are, it's, it's like this is, they have crossed a line, like the line being, you shalt eat us when we are dead, but thou uh-huh. shalt not do the killing. Right. It's supposed to be like uh, humans eating lobsters, not mm-hmm. lobster cousins eating human cousins. I mean, that is clearly verboten, but it's just not. It's just not verboten. It it happens in nature, and there are examples of Scolopendra that do this. So according to a 2005 article in the Caribbean Journal of Science by Molinari et al., quote, Scolopendrid centipedes prey on frogs and toads up to 95 millimeters long, small lizards, snakes up to 247 millimeters long, birds up to the size of a sparrow, and both field and house mice. So you've got some centipedes in this genus that are getting down on birds, they're getting down on mice, but presumably due to size restrictions, I think if there are actually any cases of scolopendrids getting in people's noses, it's it's going to be not the ones that twist their many-legged bodies around mice and sparrows and eat their worn-blooded mammal, mammal flesh, right? The, those would ha- probably be too big to end up in the nasal cavity. 
Now, back to Thomas Morris, the uh, the medical history writer who brought this case to my attention on his blog. He, he writes in his blog post that he thinks it's unlikely that the centipede would have survived inside the woman's nasal sinuses for as long as the report alleges, which is more than a year. And I, I think that's I don't know. It's one of those things where it's hard to know for sure, but that does seem like a likely objection to throw, right? Right. It's like, what would it be eating in there? Uh, could it really like survive in there that long without getting blown out or killed in some other way? Yeah, it just doesn't seem sustainable. On the other hand, the report is detailed. It's published in a reasonably reliable source. It does seem to be reported by a physician. It just seems sort of inherently unlikely. Then again, you know, there are all kinds of things we could go to. We can talk in a minute about the possibility of hoaxes, of confusion. I mean, what if just like a centipede happened to get up in her nose during the last day or so mm-hmm. of an otherwise bad nose inflammation period? Uh, that also seems unlikely, but eh. So, um, This is not the only reported case of a centipede up the nose. In fact, I came across a totally separate case from an old medical archive also dug up by Thomas Morris on his blog. This was several years ago. Uh, This is from the first volume of Medical Essays and Observations published in 1764. So here's this case. Quote, A woman of good heel constitution, meaning she was healthy, about 36 years old, began to complain of a fixed pain in the lower and right side of her forehead. During the last two years, this pain became continual, accompanied with convulsions, often depriving her of both her reason and rest. She was two or three times brought to death's door by it. At the end of four years, after trying several medicines to no purpose and despairing of any relief and yet not knowing what to do, she took to taking rapi snuff, so it's like tobacco snuff. She had not taken the snuff for a month when, behold, seized one morning with a fit of sneezing and blowing her nose after, to her great surprise, she found a worm rolled up in a little blood. Hmm. This worm, when stretched to its full length, was six inches long, and but two when it contracted itself. It was two lines broad and one and a half thick, of a coffee color, convex on one side and flat on the other. It was of the centipede kind and had fifty-six feet on each side. It had two eyes, and both its head and tail were armed with two forks. It lived eighteen hours in an empty bottle and three or four hours after brandy had been put to it. The egg that produced this worm, in all probability, was sucked in along with the air she breathed and carried after to the frontal sinus, where it met with a proper nidus, meaning nest, to give it both growth and increase. All right. Well, at least we have a a, a hypothesis here of how it could have wound up there, right? Maybe. I mean, uh, that seemed – well, she sucked in the egg somehow and it hatched in there. That also – I don't know. I'm not a centipede expert. This seems a little bit unlikely, but well, it sounded like the the implication here was that it might the egg might have been in the snuff. At any rate, there's there's at least a there's a there's a, an attempt at explaining how it wound up in there. It's not like oh God has has put a centipede in thy head, <laughs> right? It is a, clearly spontaneous a sign. generation of centipedes <laughs> right. in the head. You know? Right. Clearly, we have we have a theory about uh, we have a hypothesis about how it could have ended up in there, and then the story of how it ended up uh, coming out. 
It's about to get weirder. Guess what the reporting physician recommends as a treatment for centipede sinus? Blowing one's nose? Nope. Uh, Monsieur Litre, who related the story, advises in all such stubborn cases as will not submit to either external or internal means to come to the trepan, which may be employed with all safety. That's right, trepanning. If the insect won't come out. Now, we've talked about trepanning on the podcast before. What's going on here? You bring out the drill. That's right. We're talking usually. Usually, the idea would be oh, we're going to drill a hole in the skull to relieve pressure. Yeah, uh, and to uh, and, and therefore uh, uh, relieve you of your symptoms. But I guess this is the idea of like, okay, it needs that centipede needs out of your head. It's not coming out through the naturally occurring gateways. We shall make a new gateway in the head for the centipede. Right. I mean, this is almost like the centipede is kind of taking the role of the stone of madness in, yeah. the, in the medieval form here. Uh, though, again, I want to allow. I, I feel this is unlikely. It's not impossible. A lady had a centipede in her sinus. Uh, he also recommends using oil and acrid plants to force it out. That maybe seems more reasonable. Yeah, I would be like, let's try that first. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's check those off the list first. Okay, that's not all. I feel like uh, who's, the, who's the game show host who says that's not all? You're going to get more prizes. I don't know. The Cat in the Hat says that. But, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm quite a game show host. Uh, the Cat in the Hat. I'll, I'll be the Cat in the Hat and say that's not the, the last of the centipedes up the noses. We got more for you, including with more tobacco associations mm. with the snuff. A uh, third case documented right alongside the first one in this uh, in this source from the 18th century. Monsieur Malot reported that one of the king's household troops complained for three years of an acute pain in the left frontal sinus, which extended to the eye of the same side so as to endanger his losing it. He had also a buzzing noise in his ear, to relieve which he had some oil of sweet almonds put into it. And in two days after, he perceived in his left nostril an itching and stinging as as if something moved there, which he could not discharge, but by putting his finger into his nose, when behold, he pulled out a worm, which ran swiftly on the palm of his hand, though covered with a viscous matter and snuff, of which this gentleman took plenty. This worm was put into a tobacco box with snuff in it, where it lived five or six days. All the patient's complaints ceased after this worm came away. The only difference between this and the former is this. This worm was six lines only, long and had but 100 feet. But there was this singular in both cases. The former was thought to be expelled by the use of tobacco snuff, whereas this subsisted three years with a plentiful use of the same weed and after its expulsion lived five or six days on the same. All right. So the idea here is that the centipede lived for years in this guy's head because he kept putting snuff in there and it was eating the snuff. It seems to be at least partially the implication. Okay. I don't know about eating the snuff. Uh, there, there seem to be multiple reasons to doubt the story, especially if you're taking on that detail about the last one, like surviving by eating tobacco. Tobacco, of course, contains nicotine, which is a powerful poison. Like so many of the drugs that humans consume on purpose recreationally, nicotine is supposed to discourage animals from taking the from consuming the plant. And this is one of the reasons nicotine can be used as a natural pesticide. However, I do want to take a, a really brief. Dive 
digression just to point out one fascinating creature I came across here that does survive on tobacco and nicotine, and that is the Manduca sexta. Uh, Robert, do you know about this one? The- uh, no, I wasn't familiar with the Manduca sexta. Oh, this is great. So this is a moth of the Sphingidae family, and in its larval stage, so meaning as a caterpillar, this species is sometimes known as the tobacco hornworm. So the tobacco hornworm eats the leaves of the tobacco plant, and the horn- hornworm has a special gene called CYP6B46 that allows it to metabolize nicotine. And now there's a twist. It doesn't just metabolize the nicotine. It uses this tobacco in its diet to produce a chemical defense, sometimes referred to in the literature as toxic halitosis. It's killer tobacco breath. And so when the hornworm is threatened by a predator, like a wolf spider, it can defend itself by releasing nicotine through pores in its skin, which drives away the predator. And this has been confirmed by research that found that hornworms fed on low nicotine food were more susceptible to being attacked by wolf spiders. But at the same time, I do not think that a tobacco hornworm was in this guy's sinus. Right, yeah, yeah. There's a big difference between the, you know, this, this larva that is uh, you know, clearly uh, has evolved to feed on the, the leaves of this plant versus the, the, the predator that is the centipede. Okay, so we got doubts about all these reports, but that, that's three centipede in the nose reports now. You know what? I found one more old centipede in the nose report. <laughs> this one from the Journal of Laryngology and Otology by W.P. M-E-Y-J-E-S. I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, but I think this is a report from Amsterdam, and this is uh, from 1898. This report goes, a woman farm worker from the countryside appeared to the physician with the complaint of a headache over the right eye that had persisted for months combined with a chronic runny nose. The doctor did not immediately detect any major problems except for stuff like swelling in the nasal cavity and conjunctivitis or, you know, inflammation of the eyes. So to help lessen the swelling go down, the the doctor ordered menthol with boric acid for the woman to snuff up. Uh, man, every time you read these, you're just like, wow, these old treatments are boric acid. <laughs> um, but so she snuffed it up. A few days later, the woman returned. Uh, after she has snuffed up the menthol and the boric acid, she has a fit of sneezing and, quote, found in her handkerchief a small insect still alive. She had put it in some brandy and took it to me. The insect, which was about seven millimeters long, turned to be a centipede. Uh, centipede, of course, is not an insect, but uh, th- this report says after the centipede was sneezed out, all the woman's symptoms went away. So it's difficult to tell how much stock we should put into these stories about centipedes in the human body. Uh, apparently, like reported by physicians to real medical journals and publications, uh, and unfortunately, as we will explore in the rest of this episode, it is not in principle impossible for insects, centipedes, and other small creatures to get inside a person's cranial cavities. That does happen, and we'll discuss more later. At the same time, these stories, at least some of them, seem kind of suspicious uh, for the quality of how long the centipede was supposedly alive inside the human. Maybe not impossible, but definitely questionable. They also, to me at least, uh, I don't know if you got the same feeling, Robert, they call to mind the story of Mary Toft, the 18th century English woman and first-class hoax artist who had doctors and surgeons convinced that she was repeatedly giving birth to rabbits. Oh, yes. I remember this story. Yes. Uh, apparently, she really damaged some medical reputations because <laughs> she had some some guys on, on the line saying like, oh, yeah, I saw it. This lady gave birth to like rabbit parts and like part of an eel and parts of a cat. Which – 
if nothing else shows you, like here's an example, like somebody's willing to go through the 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 grossness of um, of producing, um, uh, say, part of a rabbit from their body mm. as a hoax. So putting a centipede up your nose, really, it, it's a lighter sentence. Or, I mean, in some cases, all you'd have to do is show up with the centipede in a handkerchief yeah, or, or in, in a bottle brandy, of brandy yeah. Yeah, and say, this came out of my nose. Now, why people would really be compelled to do that, I don't know. But then again, people have all kinds of crazy reasons for doing stuff. I mean, people just like to make up weird stories sometimes. Yeah, it could just be for for the the sheer attention of the thing. Yeah. Uh, Then again, I don't want to totally discount the the full nature of these stories because there are also modern reports of centipedes in body cavities. Some tend to be reported with like an air of sensationalism that kind of prejudices me against just accepting them. For example, uh, in 2015, KATV, a local news station in Arkansas, reported that a 14-year-old boy in Saline County woke up with terrible pain in one of his ears. He reached into his ear, pulled out a four-inch long centipede. Uh, the family reportedly put the centipede in a plastic bag and took the boy to the emergency room. He was okay. Uh, and the hospital reported they had never encountered a centipede in an ear before. I guess nothing about that story is really implausible except that it always gets picked up by like the Daily Mail and that's mm-hmm. how you see it. Um, and so that sort of prejudices me against it. But for the record, I tried to find recently documented cases of centipedes in the nasal cavity and couldn't find anything. Though I did find reports of centipedes in the human ear. So it seems like if centipedes do get up in the sinuses, up in the nose, that's it's much more rare for that to happen than for other cranial invasions, such as, say, cockroaches in the ear, which we'll get to later. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So uh, we've discussed centipedes crawling around in one's head, allegedly. Uh, where, what parts of the human body uh, are we going to next, Joe? Well, I think we should uh, we should take a foray into the oral cavity. Okay. So let's establish some basic facts here. Uh, first of all, the question: Can bugs get inside your body cavities? The answer is yes. Th- yes. That can happen. It does sometimes happen. Right. If anything, we need more bugs in our mouths uh, because we should be eating more bugs. Oh, well, that's a totally different question. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're. I think we're on the record being pro-entomophagy here, mm-hmm. uh, but not talking about the mouth cavity so much because that's less of a worry, right? Unless the bug is poisonous. If you swallow it, you know, it's just protein. Problem solved. It's yeah. Gonna, yeah. It's going to be digested. The problem would really be if it's in a cavity that is not meant to accept incoming solid matter. Ah, so this is where we're getting into the ear. Yes, exactly. And so it's time to talk about cockroaches because cockroaches are apparently one of the most common animals to end up in human orifices in real documented cases. I was reading a National Geographic article about this by Erica Engelhaupt, uh, and uh, she cites an interview with a North Carolina State University entomologist named Kobe Shawl. A few of Shawl's quotes and insights, uh, of course, first of all, it's not uncommon for a cockroach to show up in the human ear. Uh, that just does happen. People show up at hospitals all the time with a cockroach lodged in their ear. Apparently, the nose is much more unusual. This this is like a, a less common thing to find, but also not totally unknown. Uh, why cockroaches? Well, Shaw says cockroaches are constantly searching for food, and actually earwax might be an attractive s- source of uh, nutrition to them. Earwax tends to contain microbiota that emit a particular kind of volatile compound, volatile fatty acids. And these airborne compounds are similar to what might be present in meat. So your earwax might smell like meat 
to a hungry cockroach. Mm, crawl into those meat caves. It's like go, of that uh, that meat wax. Yeah, straight to the butcher shop. Get you some some gabagool in the ear. Your <laughs> <laughs> bagool. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, Shaw suggests it's possible that secretions from the nasal passage might also be appealing as a kind of food to cockroaches. I don't know for sure, but it's possible. Uh, but it's also worth emphasizing that cockroaches are not parasites. They're not like hookworms. They're not like the human bot fly. It is not in their interest to get stuck inside a human body cavity. Right. That is a, it's an extreme environment best left to the, the specialists. Right. Uh, so when a, when a cockroach ends up in a human ear or even in a nose, it is generally all just a big misunderstanding. They didn't mean – they didn't really want to get stuck in there. They don't want to be inside you. They'd rather be somewhere else, but it just happened. They were hungry. Now, that being said, one can well imagine that this could be a, a path, a long path to parasitism in an organism, um, such as, uh, say, the, uh, the, the theories uh, regarding uh, the emergence of vampire bats that oh. they may have once feasted on – um, you know, in the larva that might uh, be present at a, at a wound site on some sort of megafauna. Mm-hmm. And then over time, that develops into a more strategic consumption of blood directly from the, uh, you know, the large herbivore as opposed to uh, drinking the blood, eating the body of the parasites that prey upon the large herbivore. So an evolutionary path over like millions of years, right, yeah. not over like a night or a year. Yeah, not, nowhere we're going to get tomorrow and nowhere that we have arrived yet. Oh, that. That is an interesting evolutionary path, though, the path from, say, like a cleaning mutualism to parasitism. But it would have to be a situation – like the thing about it is for the cockroach, especially in a human habitat, mm-hmm. there's plenty to eat. There are plenty of other things to eat. Like the the, the ear wax, if it were a, you know, a great source of, of uh, a sustenance. It's probably not the best source of sustenance for the creature. Well, even so, it probably might just smell like sustenance. Yeah. Uh, so almost all incursions of roach kind into human orifices happen while the human is asleep. They almost never happen while the person's awake. And they also almost always feature small specimens of the creature involved. You don't tend to get a giant cockroach in your ear. You get a little juvenile cockroach right. in your not ear. Not one of those movie or zoo uh, cockroaches. M- movie or zoo? What do you, what do you mean? Oh, uh, because you're watching a movie or you go to the zoo, you're probably going to encounter one of those giant oh, hissing cockroaches. Yeah. And then likewise, if it's a film about cockroaches, sometimes they'll throw one of those in just because uh, some people keep them as pets and they're more uh, – they're just grosser looking. There's a 0% chance you'll get a giant hissing cockroach in your ear. Yes. If you get one, it'll be a little one, you know, <laughs> not as big a deal. Um but also, while bugs can get inside the human body, sometimes most of the reports and images of this you see on the internet are fake. We want to emphasize this. All the, you know, you'll see this on social media. You'll see reports in the tabloids, spiders crawling under people's skin, burrowing into wounds and all that. It's pretty much all fake. In, like cockroaches really do get into ears, but almost every image you see on the internet is not real. Likewise, a lot of the reports you read on the internet, especially from kind of viral sources, mm-hmm. they're not real either. Uh, one common example is, I don't, I don't know, Robert, have you ever come across the story of like ants getting in through the ear and eating the brain? Uh, I don't think I have, but that does sound like the kind of thing you might read in a forward from grandma or something. Exactly. They get through, they get in the ear and eat the brain if you like eat sweets before going to bed or they <laughs> crawl in one ear and crawl out the other ear. These things do not happen. 
happen. There are no records in the medical literature of anything like this happening, and it doesn't make sense on its face. Insects do sometimes go in the ear, but they don't eat the brain. They don't infest the deeper cranium. That just doesn't happen. But it's easy to see why stories like this, the untrue stories especially about like spiders crawling under the skin or ants getting in through the ear and eating the brain and all that kind of thing, why they are very popular and clicky and shareable and why they, they take hold of the public consciousness, why they become entomological folklore because I think they they ping a very sensitive spot in our in our you know, neurology that mm-hmm. like there's a certain part of human nature that seems very finely tuned for recognizing parasitism and creepy crawlies and anything that might be getting on you because there are real parasites out there. Right. Uh, so we're sort of hyper primed, I think, to make monsters within this category. Right. And 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 sometimes we overtly make monsters of them too. Let's not count out the the role that horror plays in all of this. Like oh, yeah. in thinking of this, how many of you uh, thought back to Stephen King's Creep Show mm-hmm. and the scene where all the cockroaches burst out of E.G. Marshall. That's a great one. Yeah, and, and, and a whole bit that's about like fear of creepy crawlies and cockroaches, you know. And then we have all these stories too of like vampires dying and bursting into, uh, you know, a wave of centipedes and uh, and bugs. Yeah. Well, E.G. Marshall, I think he plays like a Howard Hughes type character, yes, right? He's yeah. got he's like a rich guy who keeps himself secluded because he's afraid of like bugs and germs and everything. Right. And there's also I think. If this innate like this innate fear of our body being a habitat for something. And granted, oh, our yeah. body our bodies are habitats. We learn more about the, that essential nature of our being every day. Uh, but uh, it's well, part of the horrors of the grave and the idea yeah. that we would they would things would be living within us while we were alive is uh, grotesque. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, your body needs to be a habitat for your microbiome. You don't want it to be a habitat for other larger creatures, right? And so, while it is not impossible for bugs to get inside human body cavities, like there are cases where it definitely happens. Oh, yes, we will discuss more before this episode is over. Many, and I'd say probably the vast majority of cases in which someone is convinced they have bugs inside their body are cases of what's known as delusional infestation, also known as delusional parasitosis or sometimes as Ekbom syndrome. Yeah, named for uh, Swedish neurologist Carl Axel Ekbom, who published uh, seminal accounts of the disease in 1937, 1938. Mm-hmm. And basically, the idea here is that, um, you know, one comes to believe that parasites are infesting your home, your surroundings, your clothing, and ultimately uh, your body. Uh, now, of course, these reports are not isolated to real, actual parasites like hookworms and you know that kind of thing. It it also includes delusional ideas about insects and other creatures that are not actually parasites, right? And and, and very often the way it ends up going is is someone feels that they are infested by something. You know, they they feel that they have uh, parasites inside their body, in their mm-hmm. bowels, under their skin. Uh, there's some sort of a, an, an itching sensation, etc. And then they go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at them and says, no, there's nothing. There's nothing there. But they know. They they feel it. They believe it. And uh, they begin going down this road of trying to figure out what's wrong. Um, but it, of course, ultimately, it is not a problem. Uh, it's not a dermatological problem. It's not a it's not a medical, a, a, a biological problem. It is a, a psychological problem. It is a delusion. Mm-hmm. So, 
You see this sometimes uh, in the cases of stimulant abuse, especially methamphetamine abuse. It can result in delusional uh, parasites. Uh, sometimes you've seen these referred to as cocaine bugs or you know, the ideas of tweakers who pick at their skin in search of the bugs that they feel in their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Bohart Museum of Entomology points out that high fevers and severe alcohol withdrawal can also produce these symptoms along with visual hallucinations of the bugs in question. Oh, wow. Um, I, I should also point out there's a, there's a, a wonderful I don't know if wonderful is the word for it. There, there's a very uh, there, there's a there's a there's a play, uh, a powerful, a powerful thing. play uh, by Tracy Letts uh, that I actually got to see performed locally here in Atlanta. It was re- re- really good uh, mm-hmm. called Bug, uh-huh. uh, and it was later made into a 2006 uh, film by William uh, Friedkin, starring Ashley Judd, Michael Shannon, and Harry Connick Jr. Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, uh, I don't know who he played. I haven't seen the film version. Um, but I know that the two main characters are Judd and Shannon in the film. Um, but but it's quite good. There's a lot of, of skin in it, a lot of bug delusions. Uh, and it begins with conspiracy theories about the infestation of the room or the, uh, the apartment that they're staying in. And, and then they end up having the shared delusion of their bodies being infested by some sort of a parasite. Anyway, that's the, that's the fiction. But the, the fiction d- uh, does line up – uh, reasonably well with some of the realities. The delusion can ultimately result in self-mutilation uh, as one attempts to remove the bugs or as one excessively scratches at uh, the, the skin. Uh-huh. There's actually a wonderful article that came out about this a couple of years ago from Eric Boodman, and he actually won a 2018 Science and Society Journalism Award uh, for his article, Accidental Therapists for Insect Detectives, the Trickiest Cases Involve the Bugs That Aren't Really There, uh. published in, uh, uh, in STAT. Uh, he, he describes an individual suffering from this delusion who consulted an exterminator. Uh, then they consulted their doctor and then they went to a dermatologist. And each time they weren't getting the answers that they, they wanted and then they needed. They were, they, each time they were told, you know, there are no bugs in your house. There are no bugs in your skin. Uh, like ultimately they took to uh, filling a bathtub up with insecticide and climbing into it. Oh, no. And, uh, but even that, they didn't solve it. They got out and they still felt the presence of the bugs. And that's where, uh, as uh, Boodman explains in his article, that's where Dr. Gail Ridge uh, entered the scenario. A public entomologist, meaning people come to her with specimens and questions to the tune of like 23 people a day. Uh, and she works at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, so this individual came to her and she tried to explain, no, look, this is how insects actually interact with your skin. This is how, you know, actual parasites work. Um, and she ended up seeing the individual a handful of times before she learned that they died. Oh, no. Um, so in this case and others, uh, uh, Dr. Ridge here often has to weigh in on cases that are far more psychological than entomological. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Boodman's paper is, is a great read. I'll try to include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at uh, at the website, mm-hmm. uh, stufftoblowyourmind.com. But uh, it makes a, a number of very interesting points. First of all, these patients are really suffering, even though doctors tend, uh, tend to, in many cases, dismiss them and send them away. Right. Like if you show up at a doctor's office and you say, I've got bugs inside my body, and then the doctor just checks and says, no, there are no bugs in there, that, that shouldn't be case closed, right? That right. should be like there, there should be a sign that something is wrong, that you do need help in a way, even if there aren't physically insects. But it's, it's a difficult scenario because the best treatment for their suffering is usually an antipsychotic. But they're, 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 but generally the, the problem, the, the struggle is getting them to accept that their problem is psychological 
and that they need to see a mental health professional Mm -hmm. because they're coming in here. They believe that only a powerful uh, anti-parasitic is going to do the trick uh, and or that an insect specialist is required. Mm -hmm. Quote, Ridge sees as many as 200 of these cases a year. She isn't the only one with this unintentional expertise. A whole network of entomologists at universities, research stations, and even at natural history museums is all too familiar with these requests. Wow. So they come in, they bring scabs, samples of skin as proof. Uh, one of the individuals that uh, Boodman talks to is Nancy Hinkle from uh, the University of Georgia at Athens, uh, so close by here. And... Uh, uh, Hinkle says that inquiries like this take up 20% of her time and that uh, every state has, quote, somebody like Gail or me. Like wow. there's somebody in there that, that this is becoming increasingly their work. Yeah. In other words, cases of delusional uh, uh, parasitosis are rare in the medical field but far more common in the entomological world. Extreme cases may end in severe alteration of one's life, even suicide or death. Um, Here's one more quote from the article. Quote, even when an entomologist notices the telltale signs of DP, there is little that can be done over the phone. Biologists estimate that there are some 6.8 million anthropod species on Earth. Even the most fanciful description could, at its root, be a real insect. Well, that's sort of like what we're running into with uh, with the, the the cases of the centipedes up earlier. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't, we're not there to see it, so we don't really know for sure. We're just reading these accounts, and so we're stuck with saying like I I don't know. I don't think this likely happened, but we can't be sure. I mean, you can't rule it out, right? Uh, so part, part of the problem uh, identified in this article is that what's needed here are psychodermatology outposts in the medical world mm. where, the, where the connection between the science of the mind and science of the skin is, is more established so that there's greater ease and finesse moving patients toward proper psychological treatments. And there apparently are a few places in the United States and some in the Netherlands that have begun to do this. Uh, one of the accounts that, um, uh, that the author includes here uh, mentions a, a doctor in Amsterdam that uh, that deals with patients and they've they've sort of figured out how to you know first form a relationship of trust with the patient and then at the appropriate time you know let them know like this is something you need to see a, um, a psychiatrist about and and sometimes sweetening the deal by pointing out uh, pointing to an, a 2014 paper about how uh, some drugs that treat delusional disorders also happen to kill kill parasites so I think that's interesting you know pointing figuring out that like like there, there are more of these cases occurring than one might think. And if we just if, – uh, if medical professionals, entomologists, uh, et cetera, are, are, are better uh, positioned to move them towards, encourage them to go seek appropriate help, uh, everyone's going to be better off. Yeah, absolutely. Though, I mean, this is such a hard problem. It's also part of a broader problem which is present in, in the medical and mental health communities where it's um, – it just tends to be a fact that people who are experiencing delusions and psychosis, mm-hmm. another, you know, most of the uh, conditions that cause them to experience delusions and psychosis also tend to entail ideation patterns that make people resistant to correct diagnosis. So, like, if, right. if you tell a person that, okay, you know, what you think you're experiencing is not physically the case and, you know, like antipsychotic medication could help you, uh, it, it just tends very often to be the case that people don't respond well to being told that and they, they, they say, no, that's not right. 
Right. Yeah. And then oftentimes there's a, there's a stigma against uh, seeking professional help for, for mental uh, problems or having any kind of mental uh, disorder or delusion. Yeah. Uh, and then again, back to just the nature of insects inf- infesting our homes. Like how hard are our fleas to see? How hard are chiggers to see? Right. Um, you know, to, without getting into just a whole list of uh, various parasitic organisms that uh, are basically invisible to us. So again, it doesn't, I mean, if if one is presented with the option, like, well, either other people just can't see this creature because it's small or other people can't see this creature because it is a delusion of your mind, Mm -hmm. uh, you can see why people are more inclined to believe that it's just something that they just haven't found the right entomologist. They haven't found the right dermatologist to identify the problem. Yeah, well, I guess we'd certainly hope that by, like, establishing procedures like this where you've got sort of a chain of people to talk to where you establish trust with the patient and by trying to remove stigma from seeking mental health help uh, that maybe maybe this kind of thing could get better. I don't know. I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, according to what I've read, the antipsychotic medications do help the individuals. Yeah. So, like, you know, there, there, is, there is a treatment. Yeah. It's not uh, one of these because there are certain mental conditions we've discussed, various delusions, where there is not really an exit, you know, that mm-hmm. where, where things are, are pretty dire. Uh, but this seems to be something that is in many cases very treatable, uh, again, if proper treatment uh, is found. And again, I get the sense, I don't know if, if this lines up with what you, you're reading, but I get the sense that the vast majority of the people who show up and say, I've got a bug in me, do not actually have a bug in them. Like Correct, the, yeah. the, the psychological uh, cause of these symptoms, I mean, the symptoms are real in both cases, but the psychological causes are far more prevalent than the entomological causes. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take another break, give you a few minutes to listen to an advertisement and maybe feel your skin a little bit. See, see how you're feeling. Uh, but we'll be right back with more, uh, more tales of, of, uh, of bugs in the skin and bugs of the mind. All right, we're back. So as we were just discussing, it's clear that the majority of cases where people think they've got like a bug inside a, a body cavity or under their skin or something, and if you think you've got bugs under your skin, you're pretty much always going to be wrong. If you think you have a bug in the body cavity, even then you're probably mistaken. There, there, there's probably not a bug in there. But we can't say that's the case always because sometimes bugs do get in there. So I think it's time to talk about that a little more and about uh, and maybe get to talking about what to do if there actually is is a bug in a body cavity. Um, so I came across a 1997 article from the Oxford University Press Journal of the Entomological Society of America, and the piece is by the American biologist and entomologist and National Medal of Science laureate May Berenbaum. Just a few interesting facts about Berenbaum I found. Uh, in addition to being a renowned entomologist, I think she sounds very much like our kind of people. She created an event at the University of Illinois called the Insect Fear Film Festival, <laughs> which according to its website is an opportunity to, quote, watch insect-themed horror movies, handle live insects at our petting zoo, learn about insects you fear, and then get T-shirts, stickers, balloon insects, and your face painted. This sounds like my kind of event. I would love to go to that. This sounds great. Yeah, we'll have to look her up. Uh, creature features and then touching real insects. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like she's very comfortable um, marrying, you know, sort of like the the pop culture, the insect myths and all that, using that as a window to share real knowledge about uh, entomology and the role of insects in our lives yeah. with people. Let's look at the fear. Let's look at the sensationalism. And then let's look at the reality. Yeah. And so she seems very cool. She's also apparently had a character name 
named after her in the classic X-Files episode War of the Copperphages, which is one of the best episodes in the entire series, quite relevant to today's topic because it discusses uh, cockroaches, ideas about cockroach infestation and delusional infestation or delusional parasitosis, which is a, a big a big thing in the episode. The character named after her is apparently uh, is named and I did remember this character uh, named Bambi Berenbaum. <laughs> nice. I recall she's sort of like a weird entomologist who Mulder develops a crush on and Scully gets jealous of over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I recall she also has some theory that UFO sightings are actually caused by swarms of insects. But that's the X-Files character, not the real Dr. Berenbaum. So uh, this article, by the way, uh, if you can look it up, it's really pretty great, the one from 1997. So she collects references uh, from the medical literature, including an interesting study from 1987 by Baker, which found 134 cases of foreign objects found in children's ears. Of those 134 objects, 27 were insects, and of those, 21 were cockroaches. So that's 78%. The others, you ask? Well, I actually looked up the study to find out what the others were. The other six of those 27 were one ant, one fly, three spiders, and one tick. Only one of those has any business being in there. The, the tick, you can only blame so much because, you know, that's it's a tick. It's gross. It's it's there to, to suck skin. The tick's actually the worst one. I, I don't really bear a lot of ill will to cockroaches. I don't love having them in my house. But, I mm-hmm. you know, I, ticks, I just, you know, just ugh, nuke them. Yeah, like we discussed in our, our episode on ticks, uh, that certainly everyone should go back and listen to if you want to feel gross about the woods. Um, you know, they, they are out to get us. <laughs> they are out to get us. Most of the, these, these other cases are just mistakes. Yeah. But the, the tick wants you and is seeking you. And uh, if you venture into its abode, it will find you. So Berenbaum mentions that a common method for removing cockroaches from the ear is to drown a cockroach in liquid of some kind before removal. Okay. Uh, uh, this is much like my dad did with uh, the, the bug that flew into my ear. I think that was a, that was a good, uh, good thing to do. And now, ideally, I'm not going to say people should usually try to deal with bugs in body cavities on their own. Mm-hmm. Because there are cases where having like a medical opinion is important, but that does seem to be a pretty pretty reliable way to deal with it. Drowning liquids throughout uh, medical history have included benzocaine, uh, succinylcholine, isopropyl alcohol, hydrogen peroxide, ether, water, vegetable oil, mineral oil. I want to be clear, I'm not recommending all of those, especially since things like ether are flammable. Uh, a more recent technique that's been used in clinics, uh, pioneered in 1980, is the use of lidocaine spray. Uh, this is usually used as a topical anesthetic, right? You know, they spray it on you to, to numb the skin. Mm-hmm. But when applied to a, quote, inter- Intra, sorry, not inter, intraoral cockroach, uh, it tends to paralyze the insect so the insect can be safely removed. Or even better, the initial application of lidocaine solution spray sometimes causes the problem to resolve itself, as in the case of one intervention by O'Toole et al., published in 1985, in which after the lidocaine application, uh, quote, the roach exited the canal at a convulsive rate of speed <laughs> and attempted to escape across the floor. Presumably with a road run. Runner-esque sound effect. Mm-hmm. Beep, beep. Uh, and then Berenbaum notes that, uh, quote, the simple crush method was, quote, oh. ultimately responsible for the demise of the cockroach. Oh, but now i got a dead cockroach in my ear. <laughs> no, it wasn't in the ear. It was on the floor. Oh, okay. Whew. Well, so, well that, that's, that's fine. No, no, no. I want to be very clear. Don't try to step on a cockroach in somebody's ear. <laughs> that is not – that doesn't work at all. 
that method was then improved upon in 1989 with the addition of a metal suction tip to vacuum the cockroach out. Reportedly, after one case, uh, the the lidocaine spray was uh, was applied, and then the patient suddenly exhorted the doctor to quote get that sucker out of my ear. <laughs> so they used the vacuum to get it out. Um, but then also she relays some reports about fly larvae or maggots colonizing the orifices of humans such as the nose or the urogenital tract. Though she seems a little skeptical about the case report that, uh, that, that was about the urogenital tract. One of the medical reports she discusses relayed by Badia and Lund in the Journal of Laryngology and Otology in 1994 concerns this 35-year-old man in London who had an infestation of Oestrus ovis, a sheep nasal bot fly in his nose, in the 35-year-old man's nose. Hmm. Apparently, this happens more commonly in shepherds and people who deal directly with sheep. That makes sense. It's a little perplexing how this guy in London got one. Uh, he claimed he had nothing to do with sheep, but uh, who knows? Uh, according to the report, he had been, quote, sneezing out several maggots during the preceding six weeks before he called a doctor. Hmm. And uh, Berenbaum points out that it's kind of odd that it took him that long to call a doctor after sneezing out maggots. I would also think if you if you seem to be consistently sneezing out ma maggots, you do have a small window to really uh, succeed on the sideshow circuit. You know, yeah. like <laughs> like the second it starts happening, book some appearances and, uh, and and do it as fast as possible while the magic is still there. Come see the amazing maggot cake. <laughs> Uh, and perhaps the most troubling recent case, and don't worry, it has a happy ending, uh, of a cockroach in a body cavity that I came across was this one. So on February 1st, 2017, a Dr. M. N. Shankar of Stanley Medical College Hospital in Chennai, India, removed a cockroach from a woman's skull and this one was in her sinus cavity. So here's a definite like this is this is this is uh, earlier centipede territory, right? We yeah. don't know if there were ever really centipedes in there, but definitely a cockroach can get in there. It was in her sinus cavity in between her eyes and it had apparently crept up her nose while she was asleep. And fortunately, Dr. Shankar was able to remove the insect successfully with an endoscopic procedure and the woman was fine. If you've got a strong stomach, there there's a video of this you can watch on the internet. Uh, well, no, thank you. Uh, but 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 secondly, it does make me think of the little old woman who lived in the shoe. Uh -huh. So if centipedes are not naturally occurring, naturally crawling into people's uh, sinus cavities, but if occasionally a, a cockroach may, then perhaps the centipede is just the, that individual's initial attempt to deal with the problem uh, <laughs> that doesn't work, and then they have to go to the doctor, and they don't. You know, you know, it's it's like if you try and you know work on your own um, wait toenail or something, or do your own dentistry, and then you go finally and seek uh, <laughs> professional help. You don't want to tell them, oh, yeah, I tried to do this stupid thing on my own first, uh, and now I'm here with you. No, you just say, oh, I guess there's a cockroach up there. Did you say the old lady who lived in a shoe? I think you meant the, I meant old, the old lady, lady who swallowed, swallowed a fly. fly. Yeah. It might be the same woman. She swallowed a centipede to catch the fly. She, she snorted a centipede to catch the cockroach mm -hmm. that wriggled and jiggled and wiggled in side roach. Perhaps she'll die. Yes. Yeah. But she didn't. Well, no, wait. I'm, I'm not saying this woman actually did that. But the woman in the case, I want oh, to be yes. very clear, did not oh, die. Okay. I was talking cockroach. about the old lady who swallowed the fly. Okay. I don't remember what happened to her. In I the think end. she died. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, so I think we should end here with a discussion of what to do 
if you actually think there's a bug in one of your body cavities, if you think you've got a centipede or a cockroach up your nose or in your ear or whatever, what's your plan of action? So first of all, we want to emphasize again, even if you feel very convinced, there is a very good chance you're mistaken. And that should be good news, right? Like people feel creepy crawly sensations for all kinds of reasons. And animals actually getting inside the body cavities, though there are a lot of stories collected of it over the time, the chances of it happening to you are pretty rare, especially if you don't live in a tropical climate. Right. Now, I, I, I do want to stress everything we said earlier about delusional parasitosis. Uh, if, you do, if you do have substance abuse issues, uh, that could be part of the problem. But, uh, but you shouldn't be afraid to see a doctor over the symptoms if that's the case. Uh, but your symptoms could be quite unrelated to any kind of substance abuse issues. And in this case, it's it's really important to realize that it is treatable with antipsychotic medication and cases like this are not as rare as you might think. Though obviously, again, I can see where that could be a struggle to, to realize, you know, okay, it's not a situation of, of an insect crawling into my skin or into my body. It's a, it's a, a more elusive uh, concept. It's, there's something, uh, there's a delusion in my mind that has to be addressed. If the causes are psychological, there is not shame in seeking treatment. Seeking right. treatment will help you. Absolutely. So that's what you should do. Right. Uh, what should you not do? Oh, okay. Well, if you even if um, whatever the real cause is, if you think something is in your ear, say, or in your nose, first piece of advice is do not try to kill or crush it. Yes. <laughs> uh, because if there actually is an insect in there, you're not seriously in danger of a bug inside your nose or your ear eating your brain. That's not going to happen. You should seek medical attention as soon as possible, but it's not going to like – you know, eat the contents of your skull. What you're actually in greater danger of is bacterial infection in the cavity. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that article that interviews the entomologist Kobe Shaw. Shaw points out that one of the worst ways you can put yourself at risk of infection with a roach in your orifice is to crush it because this could release its mighty legions of gut bacteria into your own body and that can lead to an infection. And there's a wonder, wonderful historic uh, example of this. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about the English explorer and British Indian Army officer John Hanning Speak, uh, yes. who was famous for exploring the Nile River to find what was believed to be its source in the 1850s. And there's this story uh, related in Speak's diaries that one night he's resting in his tent and the tent, quote, became covered with a host of small black beetles, evidently attracted by the glimmer of the candle. And then he went to sleep, even though all these beetles were around, and he later woke up with one of the beetles crawling in his ear. Quote, he began with exceeding vigor like a rabbit in a hole to dig violently away at my tympanum. The queer sensation this amusing measure excited in me is past description. What to do, I knew not. So Speak tried to get it out by washing his ear canal with melted butter. This didn't work. Uh, then he tried to dig it out with a knife, and this was a bad move. He only killed and presumably crushed or cut up the insect and wounded his own ear, and then the ear became infected. Quote, for many months, the tumor made me almost deaf and ate a hole between the ear and the nose Ugh. so that when I blew it, my ear whistled so audibly that those who heard it laughed. Six or seven months after this accident happened, bits of the beetle, a leg, a wing, or parts of the body came away in the wax. 
<laughs> uh, and I should just mention that I actually found the story related in that classic Snopes article about bugs eating through the ear into the brain. So that's where I got the quotes from. But they're originally from, uh, I guess, Speaks Diaries as uh, passed along in a book about Sir uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. This is just one of many amazing incidents from the travels of John Hanning Speak and Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton uh, with whom he sought the, the source of the Nile. Mm-hmm. And the bug incident here is actually depicted in the 1990 film, The Mountains of the Moon, which starred Patrick Bergen as, as uh, Richard Francis Burton and uh, Ian Glynn, oh. who most people know as uh, Sir uh, Mormont from uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah, Jorah the Andal. Yeah, he played uh, John Hanning Speak. Hmm. Uh, it, it's, uh, I haven't seen it in forever. I saw it when I was a kid and, and loved it. Uh, but it also stars Richard E. Grant, uh, Fiona Shaw, Peter Vaughn, Delroy Lindo, Bernard, Bernard Hill, Omar Sharif. So it had a great cast and uh, I remember it being a, a quite an interesting film and a great introduction to two just fascinating characters from history. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention quickly that uh – it's impossible to be sure. Like we don't know what actually caused Speaks' infection, but mm-hmm. it seems very likely that simultaneously crushing the insect and cutting his own ear with the knife made the problem much worse than it would have been if the, he just let the beetle try to get out, and then and that probably may have led to an infection. Yeah, I, I, after you brought this up, I, I popped out Edward Rice's biography of Burton. And uh, he mentions that that Burton sometimes criticized Speak for a bit of like reckless ambition, especially in the African wilds. Uh, but then again, the two clashed at times and had a, like a tremendous falling out and somewhat hated each other later on in life. Uh, but at any rate, one, one assumes that Burton was not tremendously easy to get along with either. Um, <laughs> But at any rate, if you want to see uh, a, a, a cinematic depiction of this this uh, beetle in the ear incident, it is uh, it is in that movie, The Mountains of the Moon. Along with one of the the other more harrowing encounters they had, also that is also depicted uh, in which Somali spearmen tie up and stab Speak uh, numerous times with their spears, and then a thrown spear skewers Burton through the cheeks, through, so through one cheek and out the other. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, you see, and you see all these like later portraits of Burton, and you can often see the scar on each uh, each side of the face. Ooh, that's like a Guillermo del Toro movie injury. That's like a, what is? It? Oh, it's in Pan's Labyrinth where the guy gets cheek trauma. Oh yeah, well this was this is a a classic case of cheek trauma, not only cheek trauma but also dental trauma because yeah. the the spear uh, damaged like took out teeth and damaged the jaw. Ooh. But he was able to. They both traveled back to England after the incident and both. Uh, had uh, had lots of medical uh, care uh, tend to their wounds. Well, yeah. So part I guess the moral of the story here is don't be like Speak. Uh, if you actually do think you have a cockroach or an insect in your ear or whatever, don't crush it. Don't kill it. Do your best to stay calm. Seek medical attention as soon as possible. A doctor can examine you and tell if something is actually in there or not. And if there is, they can try to remove the animal if it's actually there. If there's not something in there, you should seek medical attention too. They can try to help figure it, figure out what's going on and possibly prescribe medication to alleviate your symptoms. All right. So there you have it. Obviously, if you have any experience with any of these scenarios yourself or, or if you just uh, have heard some folk tales of such things, or you have a favorite uh, cinematic um, uh, uh, intrabody bug threat you want to share, uh, let us know. Uh, you can uh, reach us in the, in the, in the normal ways. Uh, first of all, go to our, our mothership, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. That's where you'll find links out to various social media accounts where you can interact with us. And if you're on Facebook, uh, try joining the Facebook 
group, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. It's a great place to uh, chat with other listeners and sometimes with us. Hey, and if you haven't subscribed to our other podcast yet, it's called Invention. You should definitely go check that out. You can get it wherever your podcasts are found. And if you like this show, you'll probably like that one. It's, we bring the same kind of uh, curiosity and approach that we take to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We apply it to techno history, looking at one invention at a time. So check it out. Subscribe if you haven't. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.